Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. You could almost hear the whole world hold its breath as the night of November 8th dragged on and Donald Trump's march towards the presidency became clear. Last night was a defeat for any progressive forces in the United States and vulnerable communities as well, who now face four very difficult years. But the blame for Trump's ascendancy rests squarely on the shoulders of the Democratic establishment and its candidate, Hillary Clinton. It may be trite, but it's true. As Joe Hill said, don't mourn, organize. And my guest today, journalist and author Sarah Jaffe, is very well placed to help us start thinking how to do this in the age of Trump. Her new book, Necessary Trouble, released just a few months ago, catalogs in great journalistic detail the rise of oppositional movements in the U.S. over the last past several years, from Occupy Wall Street to the Fight for 15 to Black Lives Matter. The necessary trouble she writes about just took on a whole new urgency. Here she is to help us make sense of the present moment and the difficult tasks of organizing that lie ahead. Sarah Jaffe. can start with that. Just just the title, Necessary Trouble, just got, you know, this <laughs> huge jolt of immediacy. I mean, oh, there's already God, people on the streets of I New know. York, right? People are on the streets of New York, Madison, Chicago, um, and probably in California, although I have not seen those pictures yet. Um, students were walking out of schools in Oakland, in Phoenix, in West Seattle, yeah, we kind of didn't waste any time today, which is probably the only thing that's gotten me through today, that people are really just, you know, hitting the ground and going, um, this is not okay. This is not okay with us. That's the base you have to start with. And then, you know, the other question is, and, and this is a good question too, that yeah. you end your book with, is that, you know, how do you take all these things that have been sort of in the air and these movements that are all still to some extent, trying to build lasting organizations because it seems Mm -hmm. like that's the thing that's going to be needed to really get people really through, you know, four years after today and after the next week or what have you. Well, and and in this moment, I'm thinking I've been obsessing all day about rural organizing. I've been looking to people that I know that are organizing in rural North Carolina. There's somebody in the book, um, who I talked to there, people who are doing rural organizing in like Nebraska, people who are doing rural organizing all over the country, um, because I'm just like, we are missing so much. And, you know, I guess the majority of people live in cities, but still, when you look around and you look at the places that Trump won, these are places that are just left behind and ignored and forgotten by any kind of left, really. And, And, you know, back in the good old days, I'm thinking of the good old days of the Communist Party. And like, we were organizing rural sharecroppers in rural Alabama. And that was a thing that you considered an important part of the struggle. You didn't just sort of push those people aside and say, well, we're just going to organize these people over here. And like those people can, you know, rot. And now maybe moving back to the beginning, because this is the other thing that struck me when I was reading your sort of looking through your book again, you start with this anecdote about seeing Laura Flanders interview this Tea Party member who's a small business owner from small town Mississippi, right? These are the types of people. And and you really connect. It's interesting because you connect the anger he feels very quickly with the slogans at Occupy Wall Street. 
is this the same anger whose pol- political expression is is now, you know, for the time being sort of expressed by Trump? I wish I could have asked that particular guy that question, because I, I would have found it very interesting to see what he was, uh, what he was particularly thinking. But I think that regardless of what he did, um, there is a, uh, there's just so many people like that, that I think, you know, it was a missed opportunity and it, it frustrates me because I, you know, I don't know to what degree nobody knows until we try, I guess, what degree Trump supporters are organizable into something we would consider a left or um, even into some sort of, you know, just broad populist movement. Like, I don't know, but it, it seems to me, when listening to JD, when talking to even talking to Debbie Dooley, who's a, the other Tea Party person that I interview in the book, that we're angry about so many of the same things. And I actually thought of Debbie last night because there was the, the Florida um, ballot initiative about solar power that was this kind of sneakily worded thing um, that would have actually made it harder to have solar power, even though it sounded like it didn't. And this was one of the things that she was very involved in. And so, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound all kumbaya because right now everything is kind of horrifying. But like when I talk to these people, I'm like, we have a lot in common. What's going on here? What are we missing? Like, where is the slippage point? You know? Yeah. And it seems like that starts to get at some of the complexities. It's definitely not the case that like every single Trump supporter can be salvaged for a left. That's clearly false. Like there's, you know, there's definitely a strong right wing current. But there's, there's also... Milo Yiannopoulos. That guy exists. Exactly. And there's and there's lots of people who follow him. And there's lots of people who, you know, it, it would really take years of work. But there's also lots of yeah. people for whom this was the middle finger to the establishment vote who, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, like absolutely. we saw in the exit polls, you know, areas yep. where people were clearly voting for Obama and probably the same people yeah. were voting for Trump. So they're not like diehard racists. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the really interesting thing here, too. And that, like, I think because of those particular numbers in those particular areas, like we have to grapple with this. Right. Pennsylvania voted for Barack Obama. Pennsylvania is, you know, I'm I'm not going to say that Pennsylvania is free of racism. I lived there for, you know, several years. I organized in Pennsylvania. Like, I know the truth about that. But like, also, those people were capable of voting for a black man named Barack Hussein Obama. So it's not quite as simple as just saying that everybody's incorrigibly racist. It would be like on some level easy if we could like locate racism in certain people, but like, that's not a thing we can actually do. That's not how it works. We can locate racism in systems and people who uphold or fight those systems. And the fact that there are thousands of people again in the streets right now, at least gives me some hope that like, we can start talking about how to fight those systems rather than how to blame different people. I don't know. I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful, which might be crazy. I don't know. It might be a little deluded of me, but I, I am sort of an incorrigible political optimist, even at terrible moments like this one. I think it'll be much harder, but you know, and much more necessary for the left to organize under the open bigotry of Trump than it would have been sort of, you know, exposing the contradictions of corporate Democrats like Clinton or even, you know, or Obama for that matter. Yeah. How will the organizing that's necessary now change sort of priorities or, or, and, and also how have the fights and the movements and organizations that you've seen and cataloged, 
how has that all prepared us maybe for Trump in some way in, in the U.S.? I mean, I think that it, it has definitely helped prepare people because we're, yeah, we're, you know, we're sort of looking at, um, I don't know, I keep, oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I think we're, we're, I don't know, I keep thinking about the Black Panthers in this moment. Um, and not just because of the movement for Black Lives, but because of the survival programs, right? Because of um, the free breakfast program, free clothing, things like that, that were really, um, my friend Melissa Deere Grant said this morning, she was talking about, we're going to need like networks of care in this moment. And that was the first thing that popped into my mind was just like the way that you combine taking care of people, being there for people, having supports for people who who are going to really legitimately be suffering right now and combine that with actually like laying groundwork, building a base, actually doing deep organizing, not just kind of mobilizing, but really building a base of people who trust you and trust each other and trust, you know, trust the movement. And so that's, you know, there's that. I've been thinking about that. And I've been thinking about rural organizing today. That's kind of where I'm at. So, um, and so many, because so many of the movements of the last um, few years have really, they've done, you know, they've, they've been building encampments. Um, I was just in, in North Dakota at the Standing Rock, and it's a big camp where they feed everybody, and you have medics. And I met one of the nurses who was staying at the medic's tent, who was just like walking around the camp, talking to people, making sure that they knew that, like, we have medics from this time to this time. And, you know, at night, the ambulance from standing from the actual standing rock um you know tribal government leaves and so we just have a nurse here and like in occupy and even this summer we saw like the black lives matter encampments in new york and in um, los angeles and in chicago we've seen people sort of yeah we've seen people sort of holding space and building institutions and caring for each other and so, like, if there's one thing that I think is really good, and Occupy Sandy is obviously the biggest one, right? Like, when I think about response to a disaster and response and sort of building these networks of care, like, we have been doing that. We have some experience with that. And, like, none of them were perfect, but, like, there, there's been some groundwork there. We can think about that. And all of those were drawing on the example of the Black Panthers. So, you know, there's, there's a history to this. I think it's a really important history to be looking at. That's a good way, I think, of linking the struggles uh, for those who are most vulnerable under a Trump presidency, racialized communities, immigrants, uh, and what we heard a lot about during the election, namely the economic anxiety that lots of liberals in the media downplayed as simply code words uh, used by working class white men for Trump support. Yet your book is littered with stories of economic anxiety that cut across race, gender, age, region, what kind of work can go into building the necessary anti-racist feminist coalitions everywhere from cities to rural areas? Um, you, you talked about the 30s and the radical multiracial coalitions built there at a time much worse than today. What comes out of your book that points towards that? Um, wh what are the avenues that can be built upon? Yeah, I think that we really, um, one of my favorite stories that's in the book is when I was in St. Louis and I went to this, um, they were called Sacred Conversations on Race and Action. 
and it was put together by a you know an, an integrated sort of faith group and it was mostly white people it was mostly you know middle class and older white people because that is who is members of churches these days i mean i you know and this was in this particular connection it was mostly white and they were really sitting down and talking to each other and trying to grapple with the idea of, of white supremacy as a system that they were implicated in and not just sort of and really like thinking about it in a system again in a way that um was not just like you know how can i like be nicer to the black people in my life but actually thinking about like this is the system when we're talking about like, you know, I was able to buy a house in this neighborhood that a black man would have been redlined out of when I bought my house. Um, you know, the police do X and Y to black people in my neighborhood, you know, uh, yeah, there was one, one person who was like Michael Brown was shot by the police when he was walking in the street and in my neighborhood, you know, white people walk in the street all the time and the cops don't come along and shoot you because that's, you know, and <laughs> it's so, not what they do there. <laughs> Because come on, because they shouldn't shoot anybody for walking in the street because walking in the street shouldn't come with a death penalty, for Christ's sake. But, you know, and, and watching these people really grapple with that and really grapple with it as a system. You know, in North Carolina, when I was down there reporting on Moral Mondays, um, I already mentioned um, Wooten Guff and El Cambio, which was an immigrants' rights group that they founded in rural North Carolina. And they, you know, they had a rural Moral Monday um, where they had, you know, people who had been involved in the Moral Mondays movement in the state capitol come up to Yakinville, North Carolina, and um, Reverend Barbara marched out in western North Carolina with this guy who was the white Republican mayor of a small town that was about to lose its only hospital. And this white Republican mayor of a small town was going to march to, I think, to D.C. Um, it's in the book, so you can back check it in the book, but... Um, to try to save the, the only hospital in the town. And Reverend Barber joined him on some of the march. And, you know, some Rural Mondays people got really involved with that. And then in Western North Carolina, in like white parts of Western North Carolina, they were starting NAACP branches with a bunch of white people in them because that was, you know, who was there. That was the organization that they connected with because of Reverend Barber and the Moral Mondays movement. So, like, people are doing the work. It's not. The, the fight against fracking has a lot of these stories. So I don't want to, you know, I, I do think that there are examples. We just, we need to do more of it. And the people who are in the cities need to connect with it and see it as an important part of the fight. Because it's really easy to just think about like those people over there who voted for Trump and we don't like them and we're not like them. You know, many of them are also hurting. You know, the rich people who voted for Trump are fine. Um, the rich people who voted for Clinton are also fine. Like, but the people who, whatever, you're actually going through, like there's a, there's a lot of people in this country who are hurting across all sorts of boundaries. Did you um, devote a chapter to Wisconsin as well, right? And yeah. the fight there to mm -hmm. protect, to protect uh, public service workers um, and that uh, attempt to recall Governor Scott Walker, this, you know, right right-wing, rabid right-wing guy who's um, slashed unions all over the state. This is part of the state, like you said, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, you know, Obama carried them, Clinton, Clinton's team felt it was so secure she didn't need to visit it. Yeah. Even What are the dynamics at play that you saw and that, and, and that are there, in, you know, in a, in a place like Wisconsin, how representative that of the, of all those communities sort of in the, you know, the Rust Belt or the Midwest? 
Well, and Wisconsin, right, like Hillary Clinton didn't spend any time there, which is ridiculous if you've looked at the last, you know, 70 years. Um, Russ Feingold, who lost his seat in 2010, who had been, you know, a real champion of civil liberties in the Congress and was also known for reaching across lines, right? He, McCain-Feingold was the big campaign finance legislation of, of uh, the pre-Citizens United era. And Russ Feingold lost his seat in 2010. And... I remember talking to people from Wisconsin who were saying, you know, we, we really liked him, but we feel like he's lost touch with us and he's just become a career politician and he's not. And that, that stuck. And those people said that again this year and he lost, which is really, um, you know, it was telling this was somebody who had been really popular, who had been polling like he was going to win. And the Trump support again, like Trump won Wisconsin fairly easily. And Scott Walker is still governor. He not only survived the recall, but was reelected. So he's been elected three times now. I mean, this is also the this is also the place where unions have been really decimated. I can't remember. I, I think I saw a statistic somewhere. It's. I mean, there are quite a few of those lately. Yeah. You know, the the frustrating thing about all that is that the movement that sprang up around the, um, the anti-public sector worker union bill in um, early 2011 that really kicked off this kind of wave of organizing. You know, it, it the energy got funneled into the recall. Walker was not recalled. He won re-election. And then by the time they put up a right-to-work bill, which Scott Walker had said he didn't want to pass, and then, of course, did, because anybody who believed him should have had their head examined. But he um, had sort of successfully divided and conquered labor already. And so the people who had already been stomped on didn't really come out and fight that hard. And the unions who had really kind of taken him at his word, right, his his support of union households really came from building trades. And then they got hit with right to work anyway. And it really was this lesson of, of like, you have to stick together. We really have to actually exercise solidarity. We really have to do this. Because if not... Um, and I just interviewed for this week's Belabored podcast um, a couple of the people who were involved in the, the Basta Arpaio campaign in Arizona, which I don't know if um, you're, you're familiar with um, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who is in Maricopa County in Arizona, who is just this like very, very well-known right-wing sheriff who um, had like an outdoor tent city jail and made the prisoners wear pink and was really known for being horrific to immigrants in, in Arizona. And of course, Arizona has been the lab for all of the, you know, reactionary policies around immigrants. And they ran a really good campaign and finally got rid of this guy who was had, had been quite popular. Um, and they did it with a lot of union support, including unions that represent, um, among other people, Border Patrol and, and immigration, you know, officers. And so... And the, the people that we interviewed were saying that, you know, we, we can't win these fights alone anymore. We can't say that, like, well, the immigrants are going to do this fight and the unions are going to do this fight and, the, you know, the public sector unions are going to do this fight and the climate change people over here are going to do this fight. We really actually are going to need all hands on deck for all of these things. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, that gets back to, gets us back to where we sort of started with the question of lasting organizations. What's what are some of the lessons? I mean, you kind of end the book on this and it's 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 sort of left open, but what what are the some some of the things that you saw happening and, and what you know, what were people saying about 
specifically organization building out of out of these movements and out of things that had so far been single issue single demand things yeah i mean the movement for black lives has been around now for you know three plus years and the organizations that have been started because of that are still around and they are seeming to be lasting and they're working together as well as doing individual things so um like the byp the black youth project 100 you know they've come out with a couple of their own policy platforms they've led a bunch of um organizing campaigns and, and direct actions and they also work together with 30 plus other groups on the vision for black lives um, platform and so we really you know we we're seeing that as something that is laying groundwork for you know again for future radical organizing which is really you know it's really impressive that they've stuck around this long under you know sometimes really horrific police repression um but there's there's still questions of, of what are the containers for some of this energy um you know whether it's labor unions what what these things are going to look like in the future um what are the organizations that are going to hold something like the fight for 15 you know but it's also what's happening with you know tonight as we're talking and there are people you know holding rallies all over the country is that like these organizations are one thing and then there's these looser networks that have formed that are because of the you know because of the technology because of social media and and just you know having a cell phone in your pocket that you can send a text blast to 20 of your closest friends and say hey we're gonna you know go out and and have an action in front of trump tower like people who are either in organizations or who are just part of these networks are really quickly mobilized now and so you know i'm i'm yeah i'm not sure what organizations look like in the age of this technology if it looks the same all the time um i mean it, it won't obviously look the same all the time but it's been it's interesting this to think of this these questions right now right where like if you're waiting for sort of one organization to come along, that's you know, I don't I don't know if we're there yet, but we're but we're seeing lots of different organizations growing and building and overlapping and getting over some of the old sectarian divisions and the somewhat older left, which is incredibly hopeful, you know, when you see these different socialist organizations working together. You know, these will be the things that the organizing that takes on Trump and Trumpism will have to be based on what's what are the main lessons to be drawn or in or in another way which which are the ones which are the ones that this new situation changes as well like what's what's got to you yeah. know it's interesting I was just looking at my um, friend's Instagram from the rally in New York City and the guy who we used to always see at Occupy Wall Street with this big sign printed on a canvas because of course right that said, shit is fucked up and bullshit, which apologies, I'm not supposed to swear, but that's kind <laughs> of this sign that we, like, we saw, and it really became this sort of symbol of Occupy in a way, but like, you know, it's kind of like, what are you mad about? Everything, everything is awful. Um, as I greeted you and you yeah. called me, right? <laughs> like, everything is horrifying. Um, but like, and seeing that guy, that same guy with the same sign out tonight is like, shit is still fucked up and bullshit. Um <laughs> We still, and in some moments, you still kind of just need that big, 
space. And that, you know, I think is what's happening tonight. And the real question is like going forward, you know, right now it's just a sort of incoherent shit is fucked up and bullshit, but like going forward, very specific things are going to be fucked up and bullshit. (laughs) And like, you know, if the Republicans succeed in repealing Obamacare, which is like an incredibly flawed policy, but like if they repeal the Medicaid expansion, for instance, you know, that's hundreds of thousands of people who are going to lose their health care. If they repeal the prohibition on pre-existing, you know, insurance companies refusing to treat people with pre-existing conditions, that's hundreds of thousands of people who are going to lose their health insurance. Um, these are things that are like not academic, but they're going to be very, very real. And so the question is like, how do we move from like shit is fucked up and bullshit to like, how are we taking care of each other in this moment? How are we organizing to like prevent these things from getting cut? So if we can't save them on a national level and because of the Supreme court, things have already been unstable on state levels and it depends on the state, what Obamacare looks like anyway, how do we save this? And and how do we save this part of this thing that's worth saving in this place? And how do we lay the groundwork for, you know, actual functional universal healthcare like you have in civilized countries like hey. here? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the things that I was really, another thing that I was really depressed about last night is that there was a universal healthcare ballot initiative in Colorado and it lost. Um, this is at the same time that, you know, Democrats won Colorado and, you know, that's really depressing. Vermont had passed a universal healthcare resolution a few years ago and that really nothing has come of it. Um, and so we really have to be thinking about that fight. Where can, where is the state that can really do that? Um, how do we be proactive in this? And I know people who have been working on organizing around universal healthcare in places like Pennsylvania, um, Maryland, in Maine, um, in these states that, you know, Maryland aside have, have do have big rural white suffering populations. Um, and so, you know, there's going to have to be there's going to have to be big moments of shit is fucked up and bullshit. And there's also going to have to be real deep organizing in places where, like I said, we're not already doing it and, or we're not already doing enough of it. or People don't know enough about how it's happening. The only thing I was sort of thinking about that whole time is too, it's like that, those are exactly the issues that within the democratic party, pretty much impossible to get traction on. Yeah, I mean, and those are, and and interestingly, of course, those are the issues that really mobilize people around Bernie Sanders. Yeah, you know, so like the fact that you know the the mainstream Democratic Party, like Hillary Clinton, sort of famously like stamping her foot and saying that will never, ever, 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 ever happen. Well, twelve million people voted for a Jewish, you know, old dude from Vermont with a Brooklyn accent who calls himself a socialist and was talking about universal health care and free college. So clearly, there's a there's a base for this stuff. And it's actually not nearly as hard to find as I thought it was. And that was the best news that came out of this election, right? Was that Bernie Sanders would win primaries in places like Oklahoma. So, okay. You know, we got to start somewhere. And uh, 12 million people is not a bad place to start. That might be. That's, that's probably the most hopeful thing I've heard all <laughs> Incorrigibly, incorrigibly. That's I was going to say it, that in print, audio, or anywhere. That's probably the most optimistic thing I've heard all day. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, I just, I remember this was like over and over and over again. You know, and Bernie like almost won. Just came so close. I remember just texting friends and be like, I did not think this was possible. I did not think that Bernie Sanders could come close to beating Hillary Clinton. I, I thought he was going to get yeah. 10, 15 percent of the vote, and that was going to be it. And I was going to be excited about that. That was journalist Sarah Jaffe. 
author of the excellent book Necessary Trouble about the rise of Trump and the organizations, movements, and struggles needed to defeat him. That's all for this week. Talk to you again soon.